Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this week by Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello. Hello, Jason. We're back with much, uh, much to talk about. Lots of news mm-hmm. happening, and also uh, we're diving back into Gemini. Yeah, it's a bunch of stuff. Uh, we were getting the show together, and I put a few things in, and then you texted me back, and you're like, it's gone from three to eight. <laughs> like, oh, so surprise. Much, so much there, stuff. Things happened. There was yeah. news. It happened. There's a bunch of news. So this is like part pre-flight checklist, part mini topic. I'm not going to draw a distinction this week, because I think all these stories are... They're sort of all in the, in the melting pot of liftoff topics this week. I think that's right. So we'll do that for the first half of the show, and then we'll dive into Gemini in the second half. But there's just, yeah, there's a lot going on. So you want to start us off? There's a lot going on, and I think anyone who's listened to this show for a long time knows that I am a sucker for Kickstarters that turn photographs into books. Like, if you have a photography yep. book on Kickstarter, like, I'm probably going to back it if it's something I'm interested in. And this one, the first thing in the show notes, is called First Fleet. It is a... A series of photographs, and depending on what level you back it, you get a book or postcards or whatever, of the uh, the space shuttle program up until the Challenger disaster. So, uh, 1981 to 1986, and uh, it's all from a single photographer who had like a long-term deal with NASA to shoot. If you watch this video, he pioneered some of like the remote uh, firing stuff. So, some of these pictures are up pretty close, obviously huh. way too close for a person to be. Uh, so he kind of designed the technology to make that possible in the early 80s. And uh, and now, of course, it's, it's much simpler. But back then, it's like a lot of custom hardware to make this happen, which I thought was just interesting as like a photography nerd. Uh, but some really great shots uh, on the Kickstarter page, some good examples of what this book may entail. And uh, if you're a shuttle fanboy like Jason, then uh, this, is, uh, this might be a good holiday present. I don't know how... All right, fine. I'll I'll wear that T-shirt. Fine. <laughs> I was very curious how you're going to respond to me. I'll, I'll take it. That. I'll take it. I mean, the, the space shuttle is the is the the spaceship, the NASA spaceship of my childhood, because there was you know it was kind of over by the time I was uh, you know paying attention to this stuff. It was just when the uh, shuttle launches were happening. So I, I am, and I then I got to see the last one. So so sure, we'll we'll say that. Okay. I, I I I just I would say eyes open about all the problems with the program but sure yeah space shuttle fan how could i not be there you go it's fair so what's next um black holes are next um more gravitational waves we we talked about it a bunch we talked about how um how uh ligo and its uh, related observatories have found uh black hole mergers and a kilonova which we talked about last time and they have found another pair of black holes. It is the lightest set of black holes yet. Um, seven and 12 solar masses. So similar in mass to black holes that we have detected through other indirect means. But this is the best signal yet about black holes of this size. So it's just a little more, a little more uh, a data from the, you know, these discoveries are going to keep rolling on now that those gravitational observatories are up and running mm-hmm. and they're they're currently undergoing uh some upgrades will be back in 2018 which i think we spoke about last time being uh more sensitive to to their detection so uh i think this is going to be just an ongoing story now that every so often we're gonna we're going to to learn about something else causing gravitational waves out in the universe 
Yeah, it's going to keep happening, which is great. That's uh, science at work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Item number three, we're just blasting through these. Uh, there was a review of SLS Orion, uh, which of course is NASA's next generation rocket and capsule. And you may want to sit down for this, Jason. Are you sitting down? Mm, I'm sitting. I'm already. I, po- do you I podcast standing up? Podcasting standing up is stressful. I do sometimes, but not at the moment. No, not the Well, I'm glad you're sitting because this is going to be uh, earth shaking news. Uh, we're facing a delay. <laughs> what? Yeah. So there's um, uh, sort of. So the the quote from uh, Robert Lightfoot. There have been some risks that have not been realized. Um, they're putting some strategies in place to protect the December 2019 date, which is the the next launch date. But the risks, uh, kind of just playing the the CYA game, saying it may be June 2020. So not an official uh, delay at this point, I don't think. But I think they're just getting it out there that hey, there are some items in this list that may push this back, you know, six or seven months. Uh, so December 2019, maybe maybe June 2020. Uh, I guess we'll see. I sent you this link earlier, um, like a couple weeks ago, and what I said was, it's never going to happen. <laughs> like they just keep pushing it back. You know that, that's an interesting that's an interesting point. You know, some of this conversation was sort of floating around like on on space journalist Twitter uh, a couple weeks ago during some of the congressional hearings. There is a, I mean, there's a there is a future, a possible future that this thing just gets set aside and. I don't really know how I feel about that. Uh, we talked about SLS a long time ago on the show, and uh, again, a lot of the problems with the program and the expenses. Uh, I I think I, I want NASA to still be in the hardware business, but uh, you you can see a world kind of like um, like what the James Webb Telescope almost faced of saying, "Look, this is uh, just drawing a line. Like if you cross this line, you don't you don't get to to go any further." That hasn't happened yet, but I do think that that is a, a possible thing that that this program may face in the future this is why i think uh elon musk and some of the other people who are doing commercial uh rocket stuff keep talking up what they're going to be capable of Mm -hmm. is i think this is the sales job right is the current administration especially you would think is going to be more open to the idea that there's a big project that's run by a government bureaucracy that's been going on for ages and costs a fortune and keeps getting delayed and therefore, they are more going. They're going to be more receptive to the idea that well, out here in private industry, we can do we can do what they did and cheaper and faster. So just give us the money instead. I think that's a now. I will say, is that realistic, or are there lots of reasons? Like SpaceX still hasn't flown people, yeah, because they have to get they have to get rated for humans, and it's a lot harder for re- good reasons, right? But. I will say that um, that this is an interesting argument to make, and I think they're making it because they see an opportunity here. Every time SLS falters, somebody is going to say, why are we throwing money at this giant government program to do this when we could instead um, go with these nimble uh, space companies out here? And I'm not, again, mm-hmm. I'm not saying whether that's valid or not, because I don't know. I, I, I have heard things on both sides about it. I'm, I'm hesitant to say, oh, well, Elon Musk, I totally believe him and that he could just do this in no time because I, I don't believe things he says. I think he's a very interesting person, but he says lots of things that are not 
pra- plausible or practical because <laughs> right. they're, 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 he's overstated his capabilities. But um, you know, every time the SLS gets pushed back, every time the the costs mount, th- there are going to be people who are going to say, rightly or wrongly, um, and maybe rightly, that this is a this is a terrible, wasteful um, project that is like the worst kind of uh, space flight project. Um, I don't know. It's it, it's something to watch, right? Because that's the question: is would this get to the point? You know how how committed are they? And is NASA to this? And is this a sunk cost fallacy, which is we put in so much money, we just got to keep doing it? Mm-hmm. Or is it something where somebody might say, let's just not? There's a story I think floating around earlier this week too. Uh, a quote from uh, SpaceX saying, you know that that their BFR, their sort of large rocket, would uh, obviously require some federal assistance uh, to, to build and develop it. So yeah, so I mean, so SpaceX kind of has to play play nice with this, but at the same time, it is in their interest if SLS doesn't move forward because that would free up uh, resources, possibly in the NASA budget, to help them develop that rocket. And NASA would need the rocket to, to move forward in, in its missions and objectives as well. So I, I like you, I'm very interested to see how this move, moves forward. And I, you know, I don't think either of us know what the answer is, but I think that it is it is very interesting and very different than than previous uh, situations where you know when the shuttle was being delayed and redesigned endlessly, there wasn't a scrappy space company around the corner building something uh, viable as well, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, ta- and talking it up about how they were going to yeah. be able to because because it, it is it is easier on the outside to throw those stones and say oh well you know if we if we had that money what could we do with it but. Right. Um, but they're there, right? And they're they're able to throw the stones. And I don't know. Well, we'll we'll keep watching it. Item number four, as we continue, not a draft, just a list of items, um, <laughs> is about scaled composites. This uh, is now, crazy. <laughs> mm, yeah. So Strata Launch and Scaled Composites are working on this thing. Is it Scaled Composites? I had that. I had that down in my notes. But it's Strata Launch is the name of the thing. I don't know how Scaled Composites is involved with this. Oh well. Um, Strata Launch, though, the idea here is um, Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft, one of the richest people in the world, has built Strata Launch. Is building Strata Launch, and Strata Launch is a couple of Boeing jets connected together. <laughs> into a super wide wing with giant engines on them. And the idea is, so it's the world's largest aircraft. It's got two fuselages. It's got a wingspan wider than a football field. It weighs 500,000 pounds when empty and unfueled. Um, it is huge. And it looks ridiculous. It is, I think that my, my what I said in the show notes is bananas. It's yeah. just, it, you look at it and you're like, what am I even seeing here? It looks like some sort of supervillain uh device from a movie i mean it doesn't the scale of it is hard to grasp no it doesn't it doesn't make any sense at all um until you realize that when you've got the two fuselages and you've got this and and we've seen i think the um the ship that launches the spaceship one which is Mm -hmm. that scaled composites right um there's this um same idea which is you've got kind of like a dual fuselage and in the middle you put a spaceship that's the idea and the, the argument here, and I read a couple articles about it, is it is the, if you can build a giant airplane to lift your rocket high up and then launch the rocket into space from the giant airplane, it's more efficient fuel-wise. 
because so much uh, rocket fuel is spent and weight is spent getting that rocket going off of the launch pad. And with this, you put the rocket on the plane, you take the plane off, the plane goes up to a high altitude, uh, you shoot it, shoot off the rocket, and then the plane lands. And it's more economical that way. And they want to, they're building this thing because they want to launch it. So they tested the, their engines, these six turbofan engines. They did that. They rolled it out of the hangar this year. Um, they're they're going through the process of putting all of this together because they this is this is Paul Allen's take on um, getting cheaper access to space is launching fairly large payloads from a plane, which is you know again I think that's a cool idea because it's trying to say well maybe there's a better way of doing this than the way that it's always been done. The challenge is you have to engineer this just bananas plane to do it. Right, and this is a, it's it's a scaled up uh, version of. I mean, this is not a new idea. It's just it's just scaled up for the yeah, the Burt Rutan company scaled composites did the one that's for it's the White Knight I think for Spaceship One, and it's that mm-hmm. concept has been around, um, you know. Yeah. Because you need you, you can't you got to have the two fuselages because you've got to have the the airfoil the the plane's got to be balanced so you got to have the plane be able to take off with the weight and land without the weight in the center which is the rocket so you can't have it be listing to one side so you got to make this weird thing that looks kind of more like a paper airplane than mm-hmm. a real airplane but um, intriguing so I hope they keep going with it and we'll we'll keep our, our eye on it. Yeah, and Orbital ATK they have one called the Pegasus which they launched they had a uh, launch just. Uh, about nine or ten months ago, I think the end of 2016. Um, so, but this is just all that idea, just like <laughs> cranked to 11. <laughs> yeah, orbital, orbital ATK's Pegasus is like on a 747 or a B 52 yeah, or something. Smaller, much smaller. And, and then it's just got it underneath in the belly, basically. Mm-hmm. It's strapped to the belly and then it shoots off from there. But it's the same idea that, you know, this is this is another way to get things into space is to take them up to a high uh, high altitude from uh, on an airplane and then shoot them off from there without breaking your airplane. Uh, while we're talking about uh, new-ish spacecraft hardware, let's talk about Sierra Nevada. Um, they have a what I like to call a baby orbiter. It's a little shrunken down space shuttle. That's completely unfair to Sierra Nevada, but that's what it looks like. Uh, it does. It's called the Dream Chaser, and they had a glide test. And there's a there's a YouTube video. It's like four minutes long. It's totally worth watching. Uh, two minutes long, where they basically pick the orbiter up with a helicopter and then drop it, and it. It takes over and lands back on a runway with what has to be the oddest landing gear I've ever seen. It's the front one is just a leg. There's no wheel in the front. It kind of skids along. Uh, but they are, uh, to read interviews with Sierra Nevada, are very excited about the successful la- uh, successful glide and landing. They are, uh, they are part of the commercial crew commercial crew program it's not a company that we i i at least really kind of associate with that because they're further back than spacex they got got rejected from funding with uh because spacex and boeing got the money right but they they are still progressing this as a cargo capable and they believe also a human space flight capable um they want to they're still chasing that dream huh 
uh, uh, of, uh. Of, of doing that, even though they didn't get picked. Because I think I think Sierra Nevada feels like this this could still be a viable option for that. But they're still in the program for cargo, so they're working on on that as well. And the, yeah, the idea here is that it's very space shuttle like. You launch it on the back of a rocket and shoot it up into space, and it. Um, and it deploys cargo, deploys a satellite or whatever, or takes people and cargo to the space station, maybe in the future. And um, and then like the space shuttle, it comes back and glides. Uh, it's automated. And one of the things that I think is really cool about it is um, it's it will return. It can land at any airport, they said. Basically, any airport that can land a 737, this thing can land at because it's small. It's not like the space shuttle, and so it's it's uh it's got more room to land. Yeah, it's pre- pretty neat. So I think they're a, a company worth um worth watching. They were actually at the the SpaceX launch I attended uh, as part of NASA Social. Sierra Nevada was there, and so like we got to meet with some of their executives and and you know ask questions and stuff. And they are very um very serious about the, this idea of like a next generation orbiter. T- talking a lot about how. They could scale it down and still be safe. Uh, one of their uh, engineers was there who was working on the thermal tiles and saying how, how much more robust they were than what was around in the 70s, 70s and 80s when the shuttle was getting put together. Uh, so I think it's interesting, and I think that they are definitely worth worth watching because, they're like you said, they're kind of in this limbo of um, – uh, what they have officially is like the commercial crew integrated capability. So they're sort of – like we said, sort of in between, a little bit behind these other companies, uh, but they, I think their future is bright as long as their tests uh, keep keep moving forward. And to kind of put it in scale, like you said, it is smaller than the shuttle. The way they are going to launch this is basically packed up in a fairing on top of a rocket. Like it's it is um, quite scaled down from the shuttle, but. I think you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get a rocket launch, which is simpler than something like an orbiter with, you know, external boosters, but then you get to land on a runway. Uh, So they're kind of taking advantage of both sides there. Yeah. It's a cool idea. It is. Let's see. What else do we have? The number six is, hey, we had a visitor. Did you know? Did you clean up? Did you, uh, like, clean the kitchen and make the bed for our visitor? (laughs) This is one of the stories I, I'm seeing pop up like on Twitter and stuff from like non-space people, like because I think this is just has captured people's attention in a way that sometimes uh, space news doesn't. Yeah, this is definitely uh, I've seen it in a couple places too that I wouldn't expect it, and and, and it's uh, interesting enough that it has gotten uh, a name, which mm-hmm. is um, One Eye Twenty Seventeen. What what is it, why is it one eye? It's the first interstellar object, which is pretty cool that they and it's got a name. It's got a Hawaiian name. It's Aumuamua. There you go. You did and it. I was going to avoid it as long as possible. <laughs> Aumuamua is um. It's actually relatively easy to pronounce Hawaiian because there aren't that many sounds and they all sound like you'd expect. You just have to think about it a little bit. Um. The so the idea here is that uh, they found an object in, moving through space, and they fig- and it hadn't been there before, and they figured out its trajectory, and from that they realized that it was coming from outside the solar system and leaving the solar system. That it was not on a trajectory that indicated that it was gravitationally bound by the sun in any way. And they've got a little bit. I they may you know what its shape is. It sounds like it's kind of long. Um, and then it's it's kind of dark red. Uh, again, 
probably not aliens, but really interesting in that it is a it is a piece of material um, from outside the solar system. We know is from outside the solar system is not going to get captured by the solar system, and doesn't really look like any of the objects we know in the solar system, which is also kind of interesting. It's not comet-like at all. So uh, a mystery. I mean, it's gonna, it's gone, right? So we, we have to kind of make do with what we have observed about it. But um, really interesting. And undoubtedly, as our capabilities increase, we're going we're gonna to see more objects like this because these are probably passing through the solar system all the time, relatively speaking. But uh, still, what a, what a cool thing that this is something that came from somewhere else and is not sticking around. Yeah, it's 80 meters by uh, about 800 meters. And uh, the one of the interesting things about it is that it, it never developed a tail as it grew close to the sun. So it didn't vent right. any dust or particles or didn't – if there was any melting, nothing streamed off of it. And so there's lots of questions about what this was, uh, what it was made made of. And, and yeah, it's, it's sort of this event is over, but – uh, maybe in the future we will be lucky enough to, to spot more of these things. It basically just plunged through the solar system uh, between the sun and the orbit of Mercury, so very close to the sun and moving very quickly and just basically just blasted on through, and uh, and now it's gone. It might be Oumuamua. I'm not sure. Sorry, Hawaii. Sorry, that's tricky. Well, it starts with a it starts with a a mark. It's got a mark followed by mm-hmm. the letters, and I'm not actually sure how you are supposed to pronounce that because it's like a glottal. Um, I don't know. Oo muamua, perhaps is what it is. But it's it's I one, which is which is really cool. It is the first the first of its kind that we have detected. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Uh, so uh, there's there's more. Um, I have an item that I am calling "How Can We Love You, Supernova, If You Won't Go Away," which is a story. <laughs> about um, a a supernova that was discovered in 2014. And the astronomer who discovered it was like, awesome, supernova. And um, then something weird happened, which is they realized that the supernova that had gone off was getting brighter again, as if there was another explosion, which is really weird. (laughs) It stayed bright for 600 days, so roughly two years, instead of the 100 days uh, that it, that they normally do. It went, it got brighter and fainter up to five times, as if it was pulsating, erupting again and again. There's a chart in the story that Lauren Grush did on The Verge about this, where you can see its brightness. It's brighter than a normal supernova and super weird, like, bouncing up and down. And what's fun about this is when you see something new that you don't understand how it's working, that leads scientists to start to say, well, what could cause this? And uh, they also dug through the archives and found um, that back in 1954, it looks like another supernova exploded in the same spot. Which makes everybody raise an eyebrow and be like, or that star has been doing this for a while now. And what is going on? So there are some theories. Uh, There's something called pulsational pair instability, which is the idea that a really big star at the end of its life gets very hot and starts to kind of blow off little bits here and there. And that would be um, exciting because we've never really seen anything like that before. Although there's some questions about if that could possibly be this, because if it, if it erupted back uh, in 54, 
theoretically, it would have blown off most of the hydrogen then, and there's still hydrogen around. So the, the bottom line is, this is weird. We don't know what it is. Everybody's thinking about it. It's a puzzle. <laughs> and scientists love puzzles, as uh, the scientists in Lauren Grush's story talk about it. Uh, and that's appropriate. So it's fun because this is how we learn like, oh, there's this, like with a kilonova, it's like, hmm, that's interesting. What do we know now that we didn't know before? And how do we create models to understand it better? And that's uh, always fun. So, but again, it's a supernova that just uh, won't, won't get the hint and just, go away. Uh, it just won't, won't let go. We had a good time. It's over. It's not you. <laughs> it's us, supernova. But unfortunately, it just keeps coming back. Yeah, and it the uh, the Hubble will be looking at it uh, next month, but it is dimming, so it may be coming to an end, or maybe it's a, another part of the cycle that we don't quite right understand. But now yet. we know to look. Now we know to watch it, like keep an eye on it, and be like, well, "What are you doing? Yeah, what weird stuff is uh, is going on there?" All right, we're at the last last news item before we uh, move to Gemini, and we are going to talk about 2014 MU69, which is New Horizons target uh after it passed pluto last year uh, this is where it's going uh next way out in the kuiper belt and turns out we weren't the only ones who thought that name was a little bit silly and so there is a a name a world in quotes <laughs> uh, name a world uh, uh poll going on uh you can go vote the link is in the show notes there's some uh, a bunch of names on here uh apparently we can't name it uh bodie mcboatface or you know Planety McPlanet face. Yeah. Well, so here's what here's what's smart about this. So the New Horizons team is like, all right, this is forty six nine fifty eight, also known as twenty fourteen MU sixty nine, in a year, because I think it's basically like New Year's twenty nineteen that the that it's gonna have its moment with New Horizons. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have lots of scientists talking about oh, well, the first pictures of Blah came back, and we're not gonna be able to say Pluto. Pluto, great name. And nobody wants it to be, they're thinking ahead a year. Nobody wants to be like, hey, MU69, because nobody wants to hear that name. So they're like, all right, we're not the IAU, but we can give it a nickname just so that we have something to call it because it doesn't have a name. And it's not going to have a name by the time we reach there. We need to give it a nickname. So they set up this poll. And what's interesting about that is they're not doing the Bodie McBoatface thing where they say the winner of this internet poll will name an object. They're like, no, no, no. It's a dangerous game. They're trying to, (laughs) trying to gauge what names have some support. And as, as, um, names have gotten lots of votes, they've actually taken them off the list and encouraged people to vote for other names so that they can create like a collection of names that the public was consulted about from which they will pick a name that they feel comfortable with, which I think is probably the right way to do it. So the voting goes through December 1st. So if you want to go, you can go to uh, frontierworlds.org and we'll put the link in the show notes and you can vote. And there's some names that are already nominated as we record this. Mjolnir, which is Thor's hammer. Um, So that one also hard to type space journalists i had this conversation you and i and lauren grush had a little uh uh, back and forth on twitter about this it's uh uh not helpful if it's also hard to pronounce and spell (laughs) Uh, as fun as mjolnir is that also zahadum which is from babylon 5 it's got two apostrophes in it Mm. uh and hard to say so again as much as i love that there's a babylon 5 reference that's on the nomination list uh, I prefer two of the other choices. Olaf, do you want to build a snowman? 
and peanut, which I I actually am coming around to peanut yeah, because it's it's clearly a placeholder. It's easy to spell. It's a word. And what they said is if it turns out that 2014 MU69 is multiple objects, they've got a nut theme. So they can have like peanut and cashew and almond or whatever for the objects if they're if it's got like a moon or if they're there. It's a multi object system when they get there, which is also fun. So Olaf, Peanut, Zahadum, Mjolnir. There are other ones in the running. You can vote. Uh, Uluru, uh, which is uh, the big rock in Australia, is currently leading as we record this. Um, but I like this, that they're collecting names because they want to give it a nickname. Uh, so that that's good. We talked about how smart, uh, a year ago, we talked about how smart New Horizons was in terms of getting the public interested in what they're doing, in terms of their PR. And this is another great example of that because they know they need a cute, fun name to tag on this thing so that people will be interested when they, uh, when they just, they, they are flying past it and taking pictures. I think I'm team peanut. I think I'm, I'm just going, well, going all in on that. Nothing wrong with that. This episode of liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Enter the offer code LIFTOFF at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you need an online store or you want to create a portfolio of your work or you just want to blog. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that lets you do all of that stuff. There's nothing to install. You don't have to run around being a web at server admin. No patches to worry about. No upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff because Squarespace, they've got you covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support. If you do need help, they allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, which is super important for a new project. And you get all those award-winning templates. They're beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. We use Squarespace at RelayFM to power our blog and our merch store, and it really couldn't be easier. I go in and add new products, adjust inventory. I can create coupon codes. So like if you're a Relay member, you can get a discount or anything in the store. None of that's hard to do. Squarespace makes it all really easy and really simple so I can get back to my workday. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you, dear listener, can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. And when you do decide to sign up, because I know you will, use the offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for this show. We thank Squarespace for their support of LIFTOFF. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So this this episode, we are continuing our series on NASA's crewed space programs. We started this with Project Mercury uh, several months ago. We are now getting to uh, Jim and I. We've spoken about the, the two test flights. And today we're going to get into the first uh, handful of crewed missions. Very nice. So uh, where should we start? Let's start back in March of 1965. On March 23rd. 1965, astronauts Gus Grissom and John Young, uh, my number one astronaut in the astronaut draft that we are inevitably going to do on this show, um, flew three low Earth orbits as Gemini 3. The mission's primary goal was to test the new maneuverable Gemini spacecraft. It marked the first time two Americans were in space at the same time. Pretty nice buddies. Once underway, the crew fired thrusters to change the shape of their orbit. They shifted their orbital plane slightly. They dropped to a lower altitude. It was the first time an orbital maneuver was made by any crewed spacecraft. 
Yeah, pretty cool. Previous capsules and, and you know, Mercury and what the Russians were doing, you were basically stuck on a trajectory. You could make tiny little movements, but you couldn't make big changes to your orbit. And Jim and I uh, gave them that power, which is pretty cool. Yeah, they could actually pilot their spacecraft. A little yeah, bit. yeah, who, who, yeah. Fighter pilots, you know, the best uh, in the U.S. military. Now they can pilot a spacecraft. Hmm. This, this of course, was critical for meeting Jim and I's big goal. So the big overarching goal of this whole project was proving that the steps needed for Apollo to get to the moon and back were all possible, like in and of themselves. So you'll see this pattern in Jim and I of like, oh. They practice this one maneuver, and that becomes really important in Apollo. Or they're going to try this other thing, and that's going to be really important for landing on the moon. Uh, Gemini was a, uh, a proving ground for all of that stuff. But before we get much further, I think we have to address the the name Grissom gave to the Gemini 3 capsule, because it's it's really a, quite a story. Uh, Gus Grissom, uh, he talked about leaning into the controversy and just embracing <laughs> it. He named his space capsule Molly Brown which is a reference to the Broadway musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown about a survivor of the Titanic. There is no doubt that this is a reference to the Liberty Bell 7 sinking because we remember uh, the uh, the hatch popped and it went down and they just were able to pull him out, but it went down to the bottom. Right. Uh, later to be retrieved and put in, in a museum, as we talked about back then. Um, so, yeah, the NASA administrators were not really thrilled about this choice. <laughs> um, he did suggest to them that they could also just call it the Titanic. And they said, Molly Brown's OK. Yeah. Uh, OK. All yeah. right. Name it what you want. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I just I, I read that little fact. I was like, th- that's really really pretty funny uh the only major incident during the orbital phase involved a contraband corned beef sandwich that young smuggled on board hiding it in a pocket of his spacesuit how do you how do you hide a sandwich in your spacesuit when you're going to do a space lunch and i i I don't know they're they're concerned about they're concerned about um uh crumbs Mm -hmm. is my understanding is crumbs are a problem in zero gravity they get everywhere yeah they get behind instrument panels or behind toggles and buttons you may need access to the crew was strongly reprimanded upon landing for this uh interestingly deke slayton who was the director of flight crew uh he wrote in his book that he had given young permission to carry the sandwich aboard uh you know maybe he was trying to cover for his buddy but i kind of like the idea of rogue corned beef in space Mm -hmm. no Um, i think it's i think it's great they should somebody else should have had some other like deli the uh you know, they should have had like uh, space other... salami. Yes, yeah, that's yeah, that's right. And a little turkey cranberry uh, yeah. sandwich. Yeah, why not? Z- zero G bologna. I could go on all day. <laughs> mm. uh, but anyway, crumbs are bad, is what I'm saying. People don't don't sneak uh, bread into a spacecraft because the crumbs will kill you. There were a few um, non sandwich related hiccups on this mission. A level broke on an experiment studying the effects of zero G on sea urchin eggs of all things. Uh, they weren't level. And some of the photography work was ruined by a faulty setting on a camera. The ship itself, though, performed really well. It did pull to the left a little bit. My dad's <laughs> uh, pickup truck had that problem, too, yeah. at one point. Yeah, As the uh, flight went on, they're like, it's pulling to the left a little bit. But, you know, this is why we, you know, test these things. And this was a, this was the first uh, flight like this. So, uh, good to know that, that there was a little pull to the left on the yaw axis as the flight went on. Yeah. But you got to rotate the tires in the Gemini capsule every orbit or so. Yeah, be, <laughs> just, be sure to pulling. clean your thrusters so that you don't get a pull to the left on the yeah. yaw. 
Uh, after three orbits, the ship settled in for re-entry. Uh, while not nearly as traumatic as Grissom's previous re-entry, he did crack the faceplate on his helmet uh, as the ship was yanked into a vertical orientation by its large parachutes. Uh, so they end up changing uh, the faceplate material in later missions. That's nice. That's nice. We could change the parachutes, but let's just fix no, the faceplate. Yeah, you're, you're still going to hit the panel <laughs> this time. Your, <laughs> your faceplate won't crack. <laughs> Uh, the craft landed uh, 84 kilometers short of its intended splashdown point due to a miscalculation of wind resistance on the capsule, but the crew was safely plucked from the sea after half an hour. So none of the uh, really traumatic recovery Grissom had the first time. No, Grissom got to got to hang out for half an hour, which yeah, is, yeah. Uh, that's nice. That's much not, better. Not almost drown like the previous attempt. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, Gemini 3. Gemini 4 launched June 3rd, 1965, just a couple weeks after Gemini 3. A lot of history was made on this flight by James McDivitt and Ed White. Four days, 66 orbits. That's the longest mission at the time, building up their endurance for the time that a lunar mission would take, right? So the, the, again, looking at Apollo, we got to get people and we got to let them stay up there. So here they were. They were going to stay up there for four days on Gemini 4. Uh, one of the lesser objectives of the mission, and this is going to become a, a little bit of a theme, uh, the rest of this episode and, and into the next one, was rendezvous. So to, can you uh, be at a set location in space at a set time to hook up with another spacecraft? This time they were going to use the spent second stage of the Titan II rocket. Uh, this attempt was not successful for a couple of reasons. There was no radar aboard Gemini 4. Seems like a... Oh, well. You know. Uh, they didn't have room for it. Uh, coupled uh, with the fact that the rocket and capsule were dimly lit, so it was kind of hard to see uh, where things were. And they were in slightly different orbits and couldn't sort of close the gap. Uh, McDivitt tried, he basically expended like half of his thruster fuel and then finally gave up, focusing on a more important task and ultimately what Gemini 4 is remembered for, America's first extravehicular activity. Yeah, this is Ed White's time to shine. On the third mm. orbit, McDivitt and White depressurized their capsule and opened the hatch. No, you know, these are little things. There's no there's no airlock here. Mm-mm. So they got their spacesuits on, they depressurized the capsule, they open the hatch, uh, and White is tethered and he floats out of the spacecraft. He had a little handheld thingy that let him shoot out pressurized oxygen for thrust so that he could move around. So a little jet, handheld jet, but he was tethered. Um, 15 feet out from the hatch, he began to use the handheld maneuvering unit, very nasty term, H-A-H-M-U. And he found that it was really easy to control his movements and move around in space. Uh, Unfortunately, the EVA was plagued with communication issues, so the ground couldn't talk to White directly. They had to relay through the capsule, and there were some problems with some settings on the equipment uh, and settings on the ground, just lots of communication problems. Uh, As the spacecraft approached darkness in its orbit, the ground ordered White to return to the capsule after being outside for 20 minutes, uh, which he has described as the the saddest moment of his life, climbing Mm. back in that capsule. Well, being getting getting to be out there uh, is a big deal, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's and you know in the Apollo missions, unless you set surface on you set foot on the moon, and even then you were on the moon. Like the Apollo missions didn't have EVAs built into them or anything like that. So this is an uh, until the shuttle era, this was a much more unique kind of experience for a for an astronaut to have an EVA. So twenty minutes, 
a fun and, and in the from the earth to the moon uh miniseries chris isaac plays ed white and he was um uh, reluctant to come in and it's a sweet scene where he's he's floating around out there and uh, they're like come on in Ed and he's like um, <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> yeah exactly right so one of the challenges with doing an EVA is you've got to have a hatch you open and close you don't just stay in the tin can you got to go out and that turned out to be a difficult hatch to manage McDivitt struggled to open and close it although he was fortunately able to latch it safely for the return home. And beyond the hatch, the Gemini capsule had its onboard computer fail on the 48th orbit. The capsule was controlled by the ground during re-entry, which is good. That was also the case with Mercury, because if they had needed to rely on their computer, they would have been in trouble. Mm-hmm. And computers. Not a, great, not a great day for IBM. <laughs> no, computers imagine. don't trust them. Like, yeah, not, not good. Mm-hmm. Up next, we have Gemini 5 with launched... Uh, August 26th, 1965. So again, this is a very fast program crewed by Gordon Cooper and Pete Conrad. Its main objective was just mission duration. Uh, So Gemini 4 was four days. Gemini 5 was eight days. The length of time it would take to fly to the moon, land, and return. Uh, Cooper was the first person to fly to Earth uh, orbital missions, which is a a fun fact. But but yeah, eight days. that's, That's a quite a time in a very tiny capsule yeah i mean they're doubling their record on this which Mm -hmm. is uh and and yeah there there is not eight eight days oh my god that must have been terrible right (laughs) yeah gemini was not big oh boy um so cooper and conrad were supposed to at least do something because again they're just sitting in chairs for eight days they're supposed to make a practice rendezvous with a pod deployed from the spacecraft. So the idea is they let something go and then they're like practicing the rendezvous. But they also, like Gemini 4 before them, failed to rendezvous in orbit. There were problems with the electrical supply, which meant a uh, a switch was required to a simpler phantom rendezvous. Imagination! Where the (laughs) Gemini craft maneuvered to a predetermined position in space where there was nothing. So they tried to make the best they could out of not being able to do a real rendezvous. Yeah. Now that electrical failure was kind of a big deal. So Gemini 5's longevity was made possible by new fuel cells that turned out to be uh, a little problematic. They had to scrub the rendezvous, as you said, but they also had to scrub several experiments on board for uh, lack of power. That's not good. Now, these fuel cells, and you know, it's a little chemical reaction that generates power, generates water, which is great. Um, well, <laughs> the water expelled by the fuel cells was also too acidic, had a high quantity of gas bubbles in it, um so they they made a soda stream in space basically uh, yeah i guess like except worse um (laughs) the astronauts didn't experience much of an appetite during the mission they only got about a thousand calories a day which is well below what they intended which is 2700 calories per day post-flight medical exams showed they had lost some red blood cells and plasma this again is part of the story of how what what happens to the body after eight days in space they were trying to figure that out pete conrad returned to normal values within two days it took cooper four days to get over it the next couple of gemini missions they actually overlapped so we'll have two missions uh, at once to talk about and the first rendezvous this little a little teaser we finally get our rendezvous after a couple of attempts yeah i was gonna say Stephen, why why would they fly two missions at once so they could link them up 
they get yeah. tired of faulty pods. Like, you know what? Yeah, that's just... right. It's a stupid. Yeah, I'm tired of looking for things and not being able to find them. Let's put some people over there, <laughs> and then we'll look for each other, and yeah. then maybe that'll work. Which, although if you've tried to find a family member at the mall during the holidays, <laughs> maybe not. But uh, but we're gonna leave that as a cliffhanger. Did they find each other? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Next time. Until then, if you want to read more about what we've spoken about this week, you can find links over on the website relay.fm slash liftoff slash 60. Uh, you can find some links in the sidebar of that page. You can send us an email. You can find the Tumblr. We post links to stuff uh, uh, all throughout the, the the fortnight between our episodes. So be sure mm-hmm. to check that out, uh, liftoffpodcast.space. You can find us on Twitter. The show is at liftoffpodcast. Jason is Jay Snell. And you can find me there as ISMH. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.